Hello and welcome to an At The Flicks special podcast. For this show, Graham and I are joined by BBC reporter and presenter Steve Nibbs. Hi Steve, how are you doing? Uh, really good, thanks Chef. How are you? How are you Graham? I'm very well, thanks. It's good to be back. A bit cold for this time of year, but then what do you expect in December? Um, <laughs> so, so the reason we're all together for this special show is Steve has many talents, and one of those being his love and knowledge of disco music. So, Steve, where did that love and respect for the music I grew up with come from? Well, uh, I was born in 1971, so I was born at a time when I think music, I mean, my first, I think the first record I bought was Dancing Queen by ABBA and then I Blame It on the Boogie by the Jacksons. And it was, so I, was, I think I was, I was into it straight away. I don't think my mum and dad were really into disco music at the time, but I, that was what I was listening to. And then when I grew up and became a sort of a child of the 80s and I was enveloped by uh, electronic dance music. So the disco side was always there. So punk passed me by, which was all of, sort of the antidote to disco music anyway. I sort of ignored that. Then I got into sort of electronic music and dance and house music. And then uh, I met a really good friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, Mark Ball, who we had just this mutual we were talking one night, we'd only known each other for a year or a couple of years, and we had this discussion about music. We realized we had a joint love of disco music because uh, he used to be a mobile DJ, and I did a bit of that as well when I was younger. And we just started talking. We went home, back to his place, started listening to some music, and, and sort of rediscovered it again. And then we did a few discos, and we got our mates around, and then we did a couple of charity nights as DJs and just loved it. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's always been there. In fact, I was at a record fair at the weekend. I'm just looking at it ahead of me, and I, I bought the... Um, the, the, it's called Les Pleurs Grands Soucis de Chic. It's Chic's greatest hits, but the French version for a quid on vinyl. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, I, I'm sort of slight. I still, you know, I still keep 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 it on. But yeah, it's just great. I mean, what is there not to love about disco music? I mean, Graham, you must be absolutely passionate about it. <laughs> oh, leading the witness, Your Honour. I think that was called. <laughs> Um, no, it just completely passed me by. I was into other stuff. I was listening to punk music and that sort of stuff at the let's, time. Let's be honest, Graham. You never recovered from Frank Sinatra and Perry Como. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, my secret is out. Oh no! <laughs> no, I was I was just down a different track, and that's the great thing about music. You can just go, you know, pick up anything you want. I was out with a friend last night, and we were talking about reggae music. You know, it's mm. all. It's just yeah, fascinating stuff, and I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing the insights from you, Steve. Obviously not from Jeff because he talks twaddle, but yeah, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be interested in what you have to say. Ah, oh, shocking, shocking. Yes. Um, <laughs> all right, now we're a movie podcast, and you might be surprised we're talking about disco music, but they do converge, and it's a really mentioned subgenre of of film disco movies and we're going to put that right today now it's a shame we're not visual as despite all of graham protestations he has really got into this he's wearing his <laughs> white suit from the times with his massive <laughs> flares although i do have to say it's looking very tight on you graham and i'll be ducking if one of those buttons go <laughs> so before we talk about the movies and mainly for graham's benefit i guess um Steve, we've got to talk to these youngsters and oldies mm. and explain to them what disco is and where it came from. Before we start, I've written down a definition of it. Okay. And let's see where that takes us. 
Disco was a genre of up-tempo dance music that reached peak popularity during the 1970s. This music was often played at nightclubs or discotheques and featured repetitive vocals and catchy rhythmic beats provided by instruments like drum sets, synthesizers and bass guitars. What do you think, Steve? I think it sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I'd like to hear that track. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the whole thing, isn't it? I think for me, when you look back at the history of disco and, you know, there were some books that I've read that really sort of analyze the history of it, but it was, it was just sort of this genre of music that was there for, for people who didn't feel represented by music at the time, sort of emerging in Mm. New York basements, in attic rooms, people would hold these parties, the big names that, that emerged in the late seventies, like Chic, Gloria Gaynor sort of mention the village people because they were quite iconic with it but that wasn't my sort of thing and, and the nightclubs as well but it was you know discotheques came as a result of disco music so if you go to a disco that's as a result of disco music no matter what music you're hearing and the use of um, turntables at these parties as well so you would play your records on a turntable and dance to them that's all as a result of disco music in some respects so you know this whole subculture at the time that was for people that felt that music wasn't for them then exploded and, and became a massive thing in New York Studio 54 is obviously we'll talk about that is one of the is one of the sort of most iconic ones but then the music spread around the world and it gave that people the feeling of energy and and freedom and that was the thing because you know disco music was associated with gay culture predominantly in the early days as well so people who didn't have their place in society were able to go and listen to this music and they could be themselves which was you know here in 2023, sort of, you can't even believe to think that that was once a thing, but it was. So, you know, this music was was there for this subculture of people who felt disenfranchised, but actually became a music for everybody. And then there were riots and anti-disco stuff and, and things that went on as well, and the burning of the disco tracks in the soccer stadium, uh, the baseball stadium, I think it was. So, you know, it, it had this real place in history in, in the 70s, almost like a short-lived amount of time in some respects, but its legacy is is absolutely huge now. And, you know, how many tracks have been sampled from those classic oh, disco yeah. tracks? I remember my... My daughter saying, oh, "I love this track, this new one from so and so," and I go, "Well, actually, the original for that one was Chic of Good Times," <laughs> you know. So it's it's that sort of thing, and yeah, and, and it, it is that. It, I always say, you know, if you if you hear a really good disco track and you want to tap your foot and you want to dance in the kitchen and you want to move your shoulders a bit, that's disco to me. What I find fascinating about it, disco music for me at its core is all about feeling good. And it is about, mm. as you say, an inclusiveness. And yet it came out of a period of time that was had wars. The Vietnam War was still raging. You had you know, the oil crisis of the early to mid-70s, Watergate. And as you say, oppression of black people, some of the riots that took place in Detroit and that in the late 60s. And, and certainly the, the freedom that have been given to gay people, to laws both in America and Britain, um, and the resentment of certain types of right-wing individuals against that. And yet out of it comes something as wonderful and as uplifting for all the family as this. And I think that's it, isn't it? Music is, the disco music is uplifting. It's not, um, I mean, there are some that have some really deep and meaningful lyrics, obviously, but behind that you've still got this amazing bass line great vocals you know the brass sections as well it yeah it is i mean i think the, the thing is disco went through a bit of a bad phase in the 80s and 90s didn't it when you would go to your your mum's 50th or something and they would put on ymca and la freak and all this sort of stuff and you'd think oh it's really cheesy but actually you look back at it now 
I mean, I still do have a problem with YMCA. That's probably I can get rid of that. But you know, you, you want you, to see Graham do the moves. He can. Do <laughs> you know, so but it is still is yeah, it is still really uplifting music. And um, you know, to this day, you can put it on and and it's influenced so much. We went to a music festival earlier this year, and there was a couple of DJs doing sets in the you know for, for sort of twenty thousand people just playing music. That all started from disco, yes. and we've got a lot to be thankful for. Yeah. Now. As I said, we're going to be talking about the movies side of this, which is a, a film subculture. But before we start on that, when I was putting this together, Steve, I noticed there's an overlap to two of your likes in one place. You've oh, got... I can see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Miko with their Star Wars disco album. God, I've not heard that for ages. I should have listened to that. Yeah, I mean that was that was quite an incredible um, remix of the Star Wars theme, wasn't it? And I, it was. yeah, it was flipping heck. I, I've still got a vague recollection of a of, of seeing them performing that on top of the or, or some program. I have to have a look on YouTube yeah. later. Yeah, that was quite an maybe in a forgettable one, Jeff. Potentially, I don't know. It depends what you think. I mean, we've no, got to be fair like to this, but yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning that. Can, can, can somebody right. explain to me what the hell this is? Somebody did a a disco version of Star Wars. It's a whole album oh. of oh, whole an album. album. Okay, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, no. Don't you remember it being in the charts? <laughs> it, it got quite high in the charts. Miko's version, disco version no. of the Star Wars theme. Pass me by that. Yeah, one. It, it, it's quite incredible. I mean, the thing is, oh, it, I'm going to have to look this up now. <laughs> it probably sounds exactly as you think it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> if you've not heard it, it absolutely does. Yeah, but wow. I mean, again, I'm digressing, but I just take up this point because that was such a hit. They then actually did a whole series of classic film themes as disco. The Ben Hur theme by Miklos Rosa is available as a disco single. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, you you just don't believe what they can do out there, you know. No, anything for disco. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's good to see Graham. That one went faster past you than a Tie Fighter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> boom, boom. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to go into film soundtracks in a minute, and we talk about films. But what are your favourite disco tracks? Steve, I'll start with you because it'd be pointless starting with Graham. <laughs> well, obviously, mine is not YMCA. So my two favourite ones particularly are Turn the Beat Around by Vicky Sue Robinson, yeah. which I remember when I was helping out with a mobile disco in Gloucester years ago, Mark Greening, who may or may not be listening to this, who was the guy that ran the disco, he got hold of the 12-inch import remix of it. And it was just, every time you put it on, the dance floor was full. And my other favourite is Love Sensation by Alita Holloway, which was sampled heavily for Black Box's Ride on Time. So again, it's, you know, one of these disco tracks that influence others. So if you listen to Ride on Time by Black Box, they stole her vocals and the, um, and the, back track, and the backing track and turned it into Ride on Time. There's a whole story to this. You know, she sued. They're now friends. And the, the rumors are that it, Heather Small from M People re-recorded it for the actual release. 
So, um, but the, if you listen to Love Sensation by Loletta Holloway, it's Ride on Time by Black Box. But the, the wow. original was better. <laughs> okay. That was one. What was the other? Uh, the other one was Turn the Beat Around by Vicky C. Robinson. So oh, th- those are the two tracks, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many do you want? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've written down three. I've written down Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind & Fire, which we're going to come back to later on, actually. Yep. Um, I Feel Love by Donna Summer. And uh, Best of My Love by The Emotions would be my top three. Which is a great track. Which is a great track. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And again, that has a film connotation, which we're going to come into. Right. Graham, I've got to tell you before you answer this, the Sex Pistols are not disco. (laughs) Right. So bearing that in mind, what would you put down as some of your favourites? I tried to think of a couple, and there was only two that really stood out for me. One by Sylvester, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real which I remember dancing to a lot in the 70s. And the other one is the defibrillator song, Staying Alive, uh, which they now say is the, defibrillator the, beat, song. the beat you <laughs> use to get somebody back from the dead. Was that a first aid lesson? There, that was uh, a first aid Graham, lesson, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I liked both those songs a lot, but as I say, it wasn't my bag at the time. I do agree with what you say. There is so much disco in modern music. It's untrue. I mean, Dua Lipa's, you know, stuff that she's doing with disco music is it's bring, sort of bringing it all back. So there's, you know, his influence is, is, it will go on forever. So there's so many modern artists now that are doing great mm-hmm. disco tracks that have the essence of pure disco in them. So, yeah, it, it's, it's not going to go away, which no, is great. That's not... Excellent. So let's leap from the music to the films. And the very first disco film sort of come about completely by accident. It was never designed to be as such. So back in the 70s, we had the black exploitation films, films such as Shaft and Blackula, black version of Dracula, which is a good film, by the way. But out of this came Car Wash. Now, Car Wash was the tail end. It was meant to be a family fun film set over 24 hours in a car wash. The producers came up with the idea of, oh, let's get um, Rolls-Royce, who were having a hit, putting an album together at that time. We can use their music in the film. And they actually recorded certain bits of the film while the music was playing. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But it didn't really hit the mark. It did okay, but it didn't hit the mark. And I just want to get, before I go into why it didn't hit the mark, just want to get your guys' views on the film. I take it you've both seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Steve, what did you think of it? I mean, it's really interesting. I started watching this thinking, uh, I'm not quite sure where this, this is going. Obviously, great theme music. I knew that Car Wash was based on a film, but had never seen it. So it was really great to see uh, it's um, the origins there. But actually, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean... Anthony Fargus is in it. I mean, who's not going to like Huggy Bear um, (laughs) in makeup? And uh, to see Richard Pryor with his Daddy Rich character, which I think that was one of my favourite scenes when he gets out of the car and he's having his shoes cleaned and and all that. The film didn't really give me anything to think, oh, yeah, that's a a great plot or anything. But the music, for me, was what made it. And maybe that's the thing with some of these disco films we're going to talk about. The plot and the film maybe not as brilliant as it should be, but the music actually makes it. So as a a vehicle for some great music, um, 
it, I thought it was really good. I mean, it wasn't the best soundtrack. I mean, Car Wash is obviously an amazing track, isn't it? But yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I was doing a bit of research on it afterwards. And apparently it was named by a group of film experts as one of the mo- 75 most culturally significant films by black directors. So it had, oh, wow. you know, it's got a really, really big legacy. But the thing is, I do want to watch it again with my family on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so they don't know this yet. So if they're listening, we're going to watch this on a Sunday afternoon. I think I thought it was. I really enjoyed it. It was it was good fun. It you'd take your brain out. Some great music. Yeah, it got a PG in its time or an A certificate as it was then. It would never get that today. Jokes about prostitution, drugs, um, and even some of the jokes around the gay character would never make it today. Uh, you you saw it, Graham? Didn't you? Yes, I did. I actually saw it when it came out. First came out for its time. It was very very funny, and and I remember my wife and I really enjoying it. I hated it when it first came out. Uh, (laughs) While preparing for this, I went back to watch it again. And I did get more out of it this time. Mm. I did enjoy it. I I loved the music. The whole car wash sequence, which was done to Rolls-Royce song being played on set, was good. Um, Going back to Richard Pryor. Pryor can't remember making the film because he was so out of his skull at the time. That Uh, explains a lot of that scene then. Yes, it does. Yeah. (laughs) Gay film historian Vito Russo has marked out Antonio Fargas's character as being very significant in the development of gay cinema. And I think that's really important because it's really interesting. He's he's not mocked in the film. He's more of a leader than most mm. of the other characters in this. I think that's that's really good. The Bill Duke's character, I think, has a harder time. His religious intolerance is is shown. And I think that is Considering the the events that have happened since this film was made, that makes that a more difficult character to side with. Mm. Um, although Bill Dukes, of course, went on to play in Predator, so he, he did okay. Is it a disco movie? I don't know. I mean, the one song that's shown in the film is the Pointer Sisters, you got to believe, and that's mm. not a disco track. And that's the thing. I think that's where sometimes disco can, you can sort of say a track's disco when it's not. I mean, a lot of people say that Dancing Queen by ABBA is a disco track. You know, it gets played at a lot of discos, but is it technically disco? I mean, you can discuss yeah. that. There's a whole podcast on that. But <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose, does every track have to be a disco track for it to be a disco film? Have we defined what is a disco film, a disco film, because it has disco music in it? I suppose that's that's it, isn't it? Or is it a, just a bank disco? That's a really good point, because everything else we're going to discuss is very much disco and highlighted disco. This didn't because it was slightly ahead of the field, mm-hmm. was classed as disco after its release. And yeah, is it is it or is it not disco? Um, I find it interesting, you know, Car Wash is the track that everybody knows. But for me, um, I Want to Get Next to You is, I think, a much better track. And that's played in the background on this film. But again, are they disco? So that was Car Wash, which, as as I said, may or may not be classified as a disco movie. Everything else we're going to talk about is clearly disco. Mm. But I want to look at it from the perspective of two individuals who essentially shaped what happened in the later 70s, either through the films they made or the people that came in their wake and the films they made. And one of the key people to speak about here is Robert Stigwood. Now, Stigwood was an Australian who came to the UK in the mid-50s. He built his career through the 60s by managing such groups as Cream and, oh, the Bee Gees. How ironic. Um, And then in the 70s, he moved into film production initially with Jesus Christ Superstar and Tommy. 
but he saw the potential of the disco scene and he bought the rights to a New York magazine story called The Tribal Rights of New Saturday Nights about a 23-year-old called Vincent who lived just for the disco weekends, written by an Irish journalist called Nick Cohen. Do either of you guys ever come across this story or, or know any no, of it? No. no. I didn't uh, know the background. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was all fake. Oh, Cohen made it all up. Oh, really? That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So the whole basis of Saturday Night Fever, which is supposed to be based on truth, is actually a complete work of fiction. He has Amazing. admitted to it. There's, a, there's some wonderful um, Guardian articles I was reading where um, Nick Cohen spoke about the reality, what he saw and the, you know, the reality and what he then made up. But having got that story, which was big in the New York magazine at the time, uh, Stigwood brought in John Travolta to a three-film uh, three million-dollar deal. Now, outside of America, Travolta wasn't known. He was known in America as a supporting role in a, a one of those TV school comedies called Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, and the three films, well, we'll talk about the others after, but primarily this is a Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> Became the landmark hit for the disco movie phenomenon Saturday Night Fever. Now we're going to chat about this, but if you want more detail, there's a wonderful BBC documentary about the making of Saturday Night Fever on iPlayer, and I really urge you to, to check it out. This is some brilliant stories which I didn't know on there. So Saturday Night Fever, it hit the ground running, incredible selling album, really powerful dramatic film. Steve, what are your thoughts on this one? I think this is a such a defining film. I remember watching this with Malk when we'd we'd sort of had our discussion about disco. And obviously, I'd seen it as a kid and um, hadn't. Uh, you know, my memories of it of watching it for the first time, I, I can't ever rem remember it. But it is there are films that are iconic, and you don't use that word lightly. But this is absolutely this is absolutely it. And one of my loves of disco is is that that memory of I'm a little bit older now, so it doesn't get the, I don't get the chance as often as I did, but you walk into a club and the, the atmosphere in the club just gets you. And you see those clubs in the seventies, which weren't as sophisticated as they are now, but actually the club in the, in the film with the dance floor and the lighting up and the, the, all the lights and stuff, you know, it just absolutely draws you in. But again, so you've got the backdrop of a young, I think, you know, of a young man, he wasn't really into disco music at the time, but actually found this, his passion and what he was able to do and take him away from his life was just, you know, it's, it's mesmerizing. Yes. The soundtrack is absolutely fascinating, but it's a great gritty film with a brilliant story as well. And Travolta is just absolutely brilliant. And I, I hadn't watched it again for this because my memory of it, I thought was, was so good, but I thought I, I wish I'd watched it now, but just to, I'm going to go and watch it again after we've done the podcast. Apologies for that. <laughs> um, but I'm, you know, you, it's one of those films that you could watch any time because it is just great in so many ways and really tells the story of someone going to a disco. I mean, at a very basic level, it shows the influence of what disco can do on people. But also I think you could, you could take the disco out of this film and it would still work as a powerful drama today. Mm. You can substitute disco with anything and it would still work as that's what young people sort of aspire to. 
but I think you know John Badham's take on the film. The, you've got the grittiness of the camera work for the mm. uh, Brooklyn home scenes, the gloss of the nightclubs, and as you say, that mm. that impact it hits you. They're unforgettable sequences where where Travolta's dancing. And 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 you see those moments as well when you see you know that the the when he's walking along the road and he's got the can of paint in his hand and and he's got his smart clothes on it's you know the, that important thing about for someone at his age I can't quite remember what he, what age he was in the film but he was twenty one in real life twenty three I think the character okay. was yeah so early twenties and so you know that that importance about looking good and 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 having the best clothes and you know splashing the um, probably wasn't Old Spice but putting the you know putting the aftershave like on karate. And, yeah, you know, that whole thing about wanting to look your best and have the most amazing time to try and find a partner in a club or something, you know, that we all sort of probably went through as younger people. I didn't wear Old Spice, though. Um, but, you know, that it, it sort of really evokes that whole thing about, you know, wanting a really great night out, but obviously wanting to feel really cool as well. Um, and the thing is, for Travolta, my God, did he look cool in that film? He just looks amazing, and they captured that. But against it, I think you're right. The storyline, without it, you could replace it with any music. He could be going to a punk gig. He could be going yeah. to a, a rock and roll club or something, or just going bowling or something. But that thing that takes him away from the the, the rigors of his life to give him his identity again. What I was saying about disco, it gave people their identity. Um, is is absolutely brilliant. And I'm I can't remember. Is it true? Is a bit of trivia that that his feet the opening shot of his feet walking down a road that's not his feet. Is that true? I didn't know that. I, I will be checking on that. I'm going to check on that. Yeah, I heard a rumour that wasn't his feet. It was a reshoot, but um, I may okay. be wrong on that. Okay. Well, that, That's interesting because uh, I went to see uh, Stop Making Sense last night, the film uh, by uh, Talking Heads, and it starts with him walking out and it's just a shot of his feet the whole way. Uh, oh yeah, coming onto stage, and I, I think, yeah, right. I see where they got that from now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of Old Spice, Graham, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the film? Great <laughs> <laughs> like karate man to my heart. <laughs> um, I, I really, really enjoyed the film, and I saw it from a different sort of perspective. His ordinary life was so run down and so so mundane and so ordinary, and then he almost went to this mythical place. The disco was this place where he could really be himself. So there was a lot of the gay uh, culture thing there where anything went in the disco and you could be anybody you wanted to be and you didn't have to conform to society's norms. So it is a very powerful film about what society expects of you and what you truly are. And I thought that was really good. Hmm. And it's, it, it is quite gritty. And if you go back and watch it now, it's a, a very different film from what i saw back in the 70s but also today we have a huge and quite rightly a thing about mental health and mental mm. health and mental health of the young yeah you've got barry miller as the friend who meets an untimely end in the film i don't yeah. want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it but donna pasco who i think uh, is very underrated plays annette mm. who wants to be part of the coolness of it and when she gets there she finds it's nothing like what she wanted and that horrendous mm. scene on, mm. on the back seat of the car mm. the only person that didn't work for me in the film was karen lynn gorney i just didn't believe her um mm. as this icon that travolta was holding up and i think again you look at what her film career was after this, almost non-existent. Yeah. She didn't, yeah, she just didn't cut that. But that said, I think it holds up today. It it transcends disco. It transcends the 70s in a way mm. that 
it's still true to this day. But we are talking disco. The Bee Gees. Who would have thought putting the Bee Gees into a disco movie would have such a profound effect? Make one of the greatest selling albums of all time. Favourite tracks on this one, Steve? Um, well, you've got to love You Should Be Dancing, which I think is probably my favourite Bee Gees track because um, everybody likes Night Fever and... and um... I deep think yeah. deep is my love. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Staying alive, you know, all those sort of things. I think, um, yeah, the Bee Gees, but I think the Bee Gees for me goes back to that thing about going to the village or disco where, you know, you were all doing, I, I say this, uh, Night Fever was the first dance at our wedding. So, um, uh, you know, that's what we chose. So, but that was over 20 years ago. So I, that's my defense, but you know, the Bee Gees <laughs> sort of got a bit of a bad rap, but actually, now, when you look back on it, they were brilliant. And when I do my disco paradise shows on the radio every year, there's always a couple of Bee Gees tracks in there because they are still brilliant. Um, yes. They just got caught up in that sort of cheesy disco thing. Um, whereas actually, no, they're, 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 in many ways, they're the perfect disco tracks. Yeah. And before we move on from Saturday Night Fever, I have to tell a little personal story of how I got caught up in a youth riot because of it. <laughs> you started a youth riot. <laughs> no, I didn't even know it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd gone to see it in the week it had opened. I saw it on a Saturday afternoon in Cardiff. Got in, cinema was absolutely full. And of course, it was an X certificate or 18 certificate today. So loads of kids were trying to get in because they had the music and all of that. And they were being rejected, told, no, you can't come in. So about 20 or 30 of these kids got together around the back of the cinema. and were trying to batter the doors down to get into the screening. Well, I just thought it was the music on the screen. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> At least they were battering the doors down in the beat. Yeah. <laughs> the police quickly sorted it out. But again, that was the power of the film at the time. You know, everybody yeah. wanted to see it. I oh, know, absolutely was. And I think, you know, you, there, there are these films that come along occasionally, aren't there, where, you know, it's that water cooler moment of a film where you say, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And it's the defining film of our generation. And um, I'm sure, I mean, it must regularly appear in top 100 films of all time. Whether it's in so. top, got to yeah. be in top 50, hasn't it? I'm yeah. going to quickly Google that. Right. Did they, did they make a cleaned up version of it? They did, an A certificate version, which is absolutely awful. <laughs> yeah, just, if, if ever you're presented with Saturday Night Fever to watch and it's before the watershed, Turn it off straight away, because it's not this. So back to Robert Stigwood. This was his highlight. This was the one that put him on the map, I think, as one of the biggest hits of the 70s. He followed this with the second of John Travolta's uh, films for him, which was Grease. Now, mainly 50 soundtrack, but they did have Frankie Valli's um, main theme, which was a big disco hit at the time. Any thoughts on Greece and that particular track? Well, Greece really sticks in my mind because I rem this is one of the ones I do remember going to see at the ABC in Gloucester um, with a friend who was a neighbour of mine, um, Jane Trenfield, um, who I haven't seen for years. Hope she's listening. And I remember queuing up outside the ABC because in those days you couldn't book in advance and we watched the film. And for weeks later, we would recreate the... Uh, famous dance at the end in with um, 
Livy Newton John stubbing the cigarette out with her toe. My memory of it is that we were all talking about the film Grease because it was just so different. I remember getting the smash hits with all the lyrics in and my mum had blacked out the rude words in Grease Lightly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just like Radio uh, 1. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it was just, again, you know, that story of two unlikely people falling in love with each other, the rival, the gang rivalries, everything. It, it did have everything. And the music was fantastic. Not all of it, but, you know, the, the music was fantastic. And that, you know, that, that title track by Frankie Valli, I don't think, again, one of the ones that got caught up in the, the cheesy disco phase, it, it, in many ways, it is one of the greatest disco tracks of all time. And, you know, yeah. you don't say that lightly. But as an influential film, it wasn't all disco music, obviously, no. but he had Travolta doing his... The more I think about it, the more I think how tied up, caught up in that film I was as a, as a young lad. So, yeah, what a great, what a great film. But, yeah, not, not truly a disco film, I suppose. No, no, but it's still iconic today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's still it's, iconic. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, did you um, see it, Graham? Were you yeah, there? I did see it. Yeah, but it's, it's Romeo and Juliet to disco music. It's always uh, anything Shakespearean is a hit with me. And I, I remember it was a great, fun film. And I remember going to see it and really enjoying it at the time. Okay. Um, Do you want a bit of Greece trivia before we move on? Go on, on then. Go Let's on. have a bit of... Who played the role of Danny Zuko? when it was originally staged in London. That's the John Travolta part for you, Graham. Yes, yeah, I know. Okay. Originally staged. Oh, was it Shane Ritchie? No, no, that was much later. This uh-huh, was okay. before, before the film even. So it'd oh, been the stage the hit film? in America. Ah, it'd been the stage okay. hit in America, came across to London. And who originally played Danny Zuko? Patrick Swayze? Uh, no, it was Richard Gere. Really? Richard Gere? Yeah. Wow. In yeah. London, all right. Yes, uh, and this was, at the time, every part after Saturday Night Fever that um, John Travolta oh, turned yes. down, it was then offered to Richard Gere. <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, Officer and the Gentleman and American Gigolo were both films that were originally slated for uh, John Travolta. He turned them both down. That is a great piece of trivia there. <laughs> yeah, <we're in> trivia <laughs> there. yeah, that's so, great. My final bit of trivia. So I said Travolta had a three-film deal. Saturday Night Fever was first, Grease was second. The third film had a wonderful disco soundtrack, um, some great Yvonne Elliman tracks on it, and yet the film is dead today. Does anybody know it? No, not at all. It's called Moment by Moment, or as the critics at the time who saw it said, hour by hour. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, ouch, burn. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But not content with almost killing Travolta's career before it started, Robert Stigwood then decided to do a disco version of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band starring the Bee Gees as the group themselves. Yes, it's as awful as it sounds. The main, <laughs> the main villain in the piece, uh, Mean Mr Mustard, is played by Frankie Howard. <laughs> you've, got, you've got appearances by Steve Martin, who's atrocious in the film as well. It's just shocking. The only one that comes out with anything um, resembling honour, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, who appear in there. Uh, got to Get You Into My Life is the track they do in the film. Brilliant. And I thought Paul Nicholas, who also appears in it, was quite good. Other than that, if you've never seen it, be thankful. <laughs> Great. 
<laughs> I'll just take that one off the list then. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe another one of those films that we're talking about later in this podcast. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think so. Um, <laughs> now, linked in with Robert Stigwood is the second person for whom disco and disco films can be linked. And it's a chap called Alan Carr, which, of course, can easily be confused these days by the British comedian and presenter. I assure you, it's not him. Uh, now, Alan Carr was an American who began as the owner of a talent agency in the 1960s. Became a marketing and promotion consultant because uh, he got on very well with Robert Stigwood, who hired him for Saturday Night Fever. That worked, as we can see by the box office and what we've been saying about the film. He was then brought back on for Greece, wanted to be a producer. Carr was very clever. He said, yeah, I'll do all this, but I want one of my stars to appear in Greece. And that star was Olivia Newton-John. That really, I think, cemented him as he knew what he was doing. Mm. After Greece, it sort of fell apart. Now, both of these men had a huge sense of showmanship. Also, both were gay which again, I think we keep coming back to mm. with disco movies because it was a safe place and it was something that was well worth promoting. So they saw it to its height, but they also saw it, particularly Alan Carr, to its death. And one film in particular killed off the disco movie. And we're going to come back to that one. I want to focus in now on Saturday Night Fever and its aftermath. So after that, there were many films that capitalised on disco and were a great success. And one of them is one of my favourite films and it's one of my go-to movies if ever I'm feeling a bit down. It is the classic Thank God It's Friday. You guys seen it? Uh, I know uh, you're going to be full of praise for it, so uh, I'm not going to start with Graham, but Steve. <laughs> I mean, can you just go back and you said this is your go-to film if you're ever feeling down? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you must be feeling pretty down sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, um, this is one of those films I'm not... I mean, there is another one we're going to talk about, I think. I mean... It was all right. It, 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 I mean, you got a sense with it. I the, praise there, Steve. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, you got a sense of people having fun in a in a in a discotheque, Jeff. It wasn't for me, if I'm honest. Um, I think I found you've got Donna Summer in it. That was quite nice. Um, the, Jeff the music, Goldblum. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Obviously, the mu- Obviously, the music is great. I think the trouble is you can get stuck with these things and see that the mu- the music sort of takes it over. I found some of it a little bit silly. But then a lot of disco music can be a little bit silly as well. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I think in some ways, Jeff, I'd like you to explain why it's one that is your go-to film when you're feeling down, because there's plenty of others I could choose for you. <laughs> well, I think there's there's a sense that everybody's going to that nightclub to find something, and and they do not not always what what they expect. So I'll give you an example. The two lads, you know, they wanted to, to find true love. And I guess they do, but in a in a roundabout way. There's the blind date of the, the little guy, played by, I think it was Chuck Veneer, I might be wrong, uh, and the, the tall lady. 
which you know doesn't turn out as as you'd expect i think jeff goldblum is just so smooth in this film it won an oscar what for it won an oscar for best song last dance oh right okay well that's fine yeah it was the music yes. rather than the film yeah the, the commodores i mean floyd getting stopped by the police yeah <laughs> we laughed about such things then now <laughs> quite that's true yeah, yeah, yeah. that is true there are things about it that you know this was again a family comedy when it came out and you look at it now with the amount of drug taking that goes on in that film which has changed the certificate of the film over the years and i find that interesting marv the leatherman and his dance sequence in the car park always makes me smile <laughs> the two young girls who enter in the dance competition and by the way did you know one of those two young girls went on to be the lead singer of berlin well no i didn't know that yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, who, who was that? Which which actress was Terry that? Terry Nunn. Terry Nunn, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And the other girl, Valerie Landsberg, then found fame on TV in the Kids from Fame TV series. Oh. Right, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the culture that emanates out from this film. Yeah. <laughs> culture. I'm proud to have watched it. Graham, I know you're a huge fan. <laughs> My therapist says I'm not allowed to talk about this film because it, it leads to rage. <laughs> oh, it's awful. It's awful. Yeah, I'd rather have bleach in my eyes. I tell you, it's horrible. You're heading that way, actually. <laughs> oh, God. No, the music's great, but the rest of it is just drivel. Absolute drivel. It's one of Jeff Goldblum's worst performances. Yeah. But, hey, you can't like everything. Well, listeners, it's up to you to decide. <laughs> you, you did ask, Jeff. Did I did ask. ask. I did ask. Oh, God. Yeah. Right. So, moving, moving swiftly on. We better move on, yeah, now, because I'm, I'm just crestfallen. Uh, <laughs> oh. Now, we're going to talk about some of these other films that have come out. And I've got to be honest, most of these I haven't seen, and most of these you can't see. Yeah. You've got Disco Fever, a 1979 European movie about students crashing a disco. Obviously, they've copied that from Thank God It's Friday. <laughs> but. Yeah, they're looking for love and music. Um, you've got Boney M actually appearing in the film, uh, Eruption. Uh, Germany put a lot of money into that film. It's not seen. Anybody seen it? No. No, no. no. In fact, I'm going to... There's one at the end I think we might have seen, but most of the others I'll just rattle through then. Jukebox, also known in America as Disco Fever. Oh, I bet that didn't confuse things. An American film which tries to bring back 50 and 60s icon Fabian. Casey Kasem is also in this movie. Uh, haven't seen it. Didn't recognise any of the music tracks on the soundtrack. Uh, Disco Godfather, a retired cop, becomes a DJ at a nightclub, then helps break, take down Angel Dust distributors and includes a song, I kid you not, called Spaced Out. Now, I'd love to see this, but there seems to be no way you can get to it. And then the last, before we go on to one I think we have seen, Disco 9000, a DJ who's against disco music, sounds like you, Graham, <laughs> is forced against his initial reluctance to play it and then falls in love with it. Oh, there you go. A redemption story. No. Yeah, I take it nobody has seen any of these films. No. I can't even no, no, track them down on YouTube. Yeah. 
But one of the others that spun off from this was The Wiz. And it's a all-black stage version of The Wizard of Oz, which was then filmed by Sidney Lumet. And I loved the film. And I remember critics at the time saying, well, you look at the original Wizard of Oz, it had all different types of music and tempos. This has got slow disco and fast disco. <laughs> I, I, I think it's unfair when you've got people like Michael Jackson and Diana Ross in there. Steve, have you seen this one? I absolutely have. And I started to, to worry about it when Diana Ross suddenly got transported. But I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I mean, when you see that first scene with Michael Jackson being bullied by the crows and uh, and Dorothy or Diana Ross as Dorothy comes to rescue him. And then he does ease on down the road as they follow the yeah. elephant road. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous, but absolutely brilliant. And again, I think this is one of those films that this might be my version of the film that I would watch if I was down on a Sunday afternoon, I needed cheering up because it's just brilliant. It's, it's so ridiculous. The music is fantastic. Um, it's the, the, the way it's filmed, the fantasy side of it is brilliant. And of course, Richard Pryor makes an appearance. Mm. For those of you that haven't watched it, you can probably guess which character he is um, towards the end of the film. Um, hopefully he remembers making this one. But no, I, <laughs> I, I I absolutely loved it. It's just ridiculous in its choreography. It's big, it's brash, it's flamboyant, it's colourful, um, it's silly. It's it's just great fun. I absolutely loved it. And I didn't think I would. Yeah, no, the sets are amazing. I mean, I first saw this in the Dominion Tottenham Court Road. So I had the experience of a real, you know, 70 millimetre oh, thing mm. of it. So it, it really hit home. Have you seen it? Yeah, Greg? yeah, I've seen it. I, I must admit. It's everything that Steve said. It's just a fun film. And the immensity of the talent on, on screen is just you know, off the chart. Diana Ross and Michael Jackson just at full blast just going for it. And yeah, great songs, great tracks. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the cinematography because it, it is so bright. It is yeah, so yeah. incredibly bright, and it's yeah, and it's joyous, joyous. I would like to know what drugs they were on. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's it's so out there, and um, it's sort of like if the makers of the Magic Roundabout made a disco film. It's sort of a bit like <laughs> it's a bit like that that yes. scene when she's in the subway and and the, all the columns come around Ida Ross. Yeah. It's like wow, yeah, it's just yeah. brilliant. And, and it's directed by Sidney Lumet. Now Lumet was known for his very tough drama, films like 12 Angry Men, The Offence, anything but this all-colourful musical that he's produced here. And uh, he wanted to make a musical for such a long time, and this is the one. And he wanted Quincy Jones on board oh, wow. as um, as the uh, musical director. Obviously, a lot of the score had already been done. And Quincy Jones had seen the play, and he'd read the script. He didn't like it, and he didn't want to do it. And Sidney Lumet said, um, you know, Quincy, you do owe me. I did look after you in the 60s. And he was right. He was the first um, black film composer in such oh, things wow. as The Pawnbroker, which Lumet okay. directed. And so Quincy said, yeah, you had me. I had to do it. He said, but afterwards, you know, I looked through it and I said again to Sydney, you can't polish a turd. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which I think is unfair because I do th I do agree with you. And also, unlike many of the disco films that were originally made for a family audience that cannot be seen by a family audience now, yes. this really is 
for a family audience. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, and it was good to see earlier this year. I watched the Whitney Houston film, I Want to Dance with Somebody. And the song that ran most through this, she almost used a theme song, was Home mm. from the Wiz. So I think that as well shows that it stands up. It should be shown on TV more. Yeah, it is really great. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not sure Diana Ross was the best choice of actress to play Dorothy there, yeah. but I think there was some talk about she was probably maybe a little bit too old for it. But I mean, that's really nitpicking because I'm just looking at the trailer again just to to remind myself of some of the shots. But you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're if you're listening to this, watch the film, watch the trailer first, and it'll just give you a sense. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, we'll insert the, the trailer onto the show there. So ah, we'll excellent. Yeah. So those are some of the films that um, came out as disco sort of developed. And we all agreed that The Wiz and Thank God It's Friday are brilliant. So let's move on to phase two. <laughs> <laughs> so phase two of the disco movies that come out is a very, very strange one. I've got three examples of what happened. How the disco movie and the roller derby or the disco derby developed skate into disco music on roller skates. Just really bizarre. Only in America. It didn't happen in this country that I'm aware of. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I first saw this in a film called Drive-In 1977, which oddly enough is a film about a movie drive-in and the attempts to keep it going. And part of it is using a roller derby disco in that. So very strange film. But then there are two films, and I think you can track these down. They are still available. Skate Town USA, about a roller disco competition. Watch out on that for a young Patrick Swayze showing his roller disco moves. Uh, Nick Castle, who was involved in the original Halloween and then became a director in his own right with such films as The Last Starfighter in the 80s, wrote it. It includes music by Anita Ward, Heatwave, and... Earth, Wind and Fire's Boogie Nights, which seems to crop up in a number of disco films. Uh, has anybody seen this one? No. No, but I should have. That sounds great. No, no. Well, all I would recommend, on YouTube, somebody's put cleaned up, as in uh, removed all the scratches, uh, cleaned up version of the Patrick Swayze sequences, and they're really good. So uh, you don't need to see the film. Um, you know, you've seen Thank God It's Friday. There's nothing more than that to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're still pushing this. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other film is Roller Boogie, uh, a group plan and event to keep their roller disco open. Um, sadly, I'm sure it closed in the 80s along with all the others. Uh, it, it stars Linda Blair wow. uh, and includes the songs Boogie Nights and some songs from Cher in it as well. Uh, I haven't seen that one, I must admit. Uh, there was a copy on YouTube, but it was unwatchable. Anybody seen any of that? No. No. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and there is a thought that, thank goodness, I haven't seen it. Well, the director of it was a chap called Mark L. Lester, who I think went on to direct Hell Night with Linda Blair, a horror film a couple of years later, which is really good. But I just throw that in. So... As you can see from what we've been saying so far, the disco movie had some highs and a lot of lows. And I think when you can't keep up a consistent high, that's when things start to crash. And nothing crashed the disco movie more than one film that we're now going to talk about. Can't Stop the Music, which Alan Carr produced and wrote. So it's all about the coming together of the group Village People, 
famous, of course, for their song YMCA, which does feature in this film. But it's all through the film, they reference this is going to be the music style of the 1980s. And in fact, it changed the music style of the 1980s because <laughs> nobody wanted this anymore. So, before I pass more comment on it, and I think we're all going to agree on this one. Steve, what are your thoughts on it? Well, <laughs> being a... <laughs> Being a long-term BBC journalist, I'm not allowed to say what I really think <laughs> of this. Um, I mean, it was terrible. Um, I couldn't see the point again. And I'm just watching a few clips here again as we go. Um, I, I, if there's ever a film that was made that I can't quite see what they were trying to do or what the point was or why they even did some scenes in certain places like the sports hall, um, you know, I'm just thinking, what the hell is going on? And, you know, I deliberately, and I, I you know, I, I should blame Graham for this because it was very difficult to find, wouldn't it? But for some reason, Graham managed to find a copy. Sorry. Um, which was delivered to me. So thanks, Graham. Um, <laughs> and being due, duly diligent, I watched it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's awful. I mean, it just really is. It's everything about. I think you know my views on YMCA anyway, on YMCA anyway. So that probably didn't help me, um, but yeah, it was not good. It was not good. I just couldn't see. I really couldn't see. I, the point was there, but it was just badly executed, and it was the acting was stiff, and the scenes were just cheesy and horrible. And can I stop, mate? <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry. I mean, Valerie Perrine hated the film, hated being in it, and it shows. Yeah, um, it absolutely does. Again, it was marketed as. The, for the summer of 1980 uh, is when they released it. They were, you know, it was going to be the big film. It was the family-friendly film. And you watch it now, and the amount of casual drug-taking that takes place in this film is off the charts. <laughs> uh, Again, nobody would ever re-release it. Um, so it would certainly not get a PG certificate today. No, no, it wouldn't. And it, and it's one of those things where I can't remember what, who, which which of the village people came first, whether it was the the builder or the Indian or the policeman or the leather man, the guy dressed in leather or not. But as soon as I saw that first one, I went, oh, no, it's about the village people. And I think that probably tainted my view of it. So, um, yeah, it, yeah, it, it certainly wouldn't get released today because nobody would want to watch it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people might. I mean, there may be some people who may feel when they're down, Jeff, and they they, they want a film to watch (laughs) after Thank God It's Friday, and they may want to watch it. But I'm sensing, Jeff, that even you agree with me. No, yeah, I do agree with you on this one. (laughs) Uh, And it is interesting is that, you know, the the whole marketing of the village people were that they were all gay, and only half of them were. You know, and and that's such a turnaround. To me, that that is an achievement. The fact that, you know, people were, were saying one thing that they weren't, whereas today it would be the exact opposite. So I think that, I think to me that, that that's good. But uh, other than the, the song sounds of the city, I don't think the music worked either. Uh, Graham, you're what a huge village people fan back <laughs> in the day. What did you think of it? See, this is, this is having a friend like Jeff, you know, he'll ring me up some days and he'll say, here, I've got this film for you. You really want to watch this. It's brilliant. And it's so underrated. And I'll watch it. And he's right. It's brilliant. And then he makes me watch this drivel. It was absolutely <laughs> not 
quite the worst thing I've ever seen, but it was very close. It's in my bottom 10 of worst films of all time. It was hideous, absolutely hideous. Nothing worked in it. The directing was sloppy. The people yeah, in it didn't. The, the people in it didn't want to be in it, and and I didn't want to watch it. So we're on the same page. It's awful, and you can see why Disco died after this. This was the the, the nail in the coffin. He's got a lot to answer for. Yes. Alan Carr. He, he, do you know he spent more money on parties around the world promoting this film than the actual budget of the film itself. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So they had a good time then. Yeah, no, they certainly were good parties by all accounts. <laughs> but you know, as if that wasn't enough, Alan Carr then put the final nail into the coffin of disco with Grease Two. Oh, now what? What was the point of that? I think I only ever watched it when it came out because it was yeah. so bad. Yeah. Well, it made a star, Michelle Pfeiffer. That's about it, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah she starred in it. Yeah, very forgettable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then his protege, who he forced into Greece One, Olivia Newton-John, made Xanadu. <laughs> Olivia Newton-John and Gene Kelly. Well, that doesn't get any better, does it? <laughs> Can you imagine the pitch meeting for that? Oh, yeah. I've got oh. this great idea, and we've got Olivia Newton-John and Gene Kelly together. Yeah. And who are we going to have as the male lead? Well, there's this young lad who starred in this film, The Warriors, Michael Beck. We'll put him in it, looking like he's just wandered off the set of The Warriors <laughs> in this fun musical film. Oh, it's dreadful. The music by ELO is quite good. Thought that was all right. But that's about it, really. Um, but, yeah, I think those are the film side of things. But I just want to wrap up, and, and you mentioned it earlier, Steve, the sort of the ending of disco as a trend and the white socks and the disco dem demolition stunt of July 79. The disco de demolition thing is one of those things that there are two things that I can, I find very difficult to see visually. One is somebody smashing up a piano because oh, yeah. I play piano and I just, it really grates me even mm. in the Laurel and Hardy films that like the music box when the piano is smashed, it really gets to me because I think, oh, like, all that potential gone. And actually the disco demolition when they're burning the records at the stadium, I mean, it's, I know it was a really big protest about disco and that things were changing and, you know, people reclaiming um, what they felt, you know, it was the sort of the, the, the new disenfranchised sort of taking over and, and reclaiming stuff. It's just really difficult to watch, but it was an idea to, to, to get some publicity, wasn't it? Around, the actual real idea was to to attract people to the to the baseball stadium rather than the the anti disco movement. Was that right? Yeah, white, the White Sox uh, were really struggling. They weren't getting the numbers up, so they turned. Uh, and I had to research this, this. This I didn't really know. This chap called Steve Dahl, and he'd been dropped from a radio station, and he just wanted to get his own back on the music of the time. So he came up with this idea of burning everything. Um, which was absolutely trashed in the press at the time, mm. saying how foul it was. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was this whole idea, wasn't it, that, that it was the disenfranchised reclaiming stuff, but actually it was just a publicity stunt at the end. And, um, yeah, still very difficult for me to watch. <laughs> so that leads me neatly on into where we are with disco now. And I want to start with a new documentary on Netflix called The Saint of Second Chances, which is all about that uh, disco demolition stunt and what led up to it, the events of the night and what happened after. I take it that's uh, not going to be on your watch list then, Steve? 
it, 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 well, I didn't know about it, but actually I may, I may watch it because I think it's, it's, it's certainly interesting to know the backstory of it. But yeah, no, that's something I've not heard of actually, Jeff. So that might be one for me to, to, to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, so only just come out on Netflix. Um, so that, what about you, Graham? Oh, yeah, I shall watch that because I don't know anything about this. And, um, yeah, I do uh, – I'm, I'm a bit like Steve. I do hate anybody who starts burning culture, d- despite whoever's culture it is. You know, I just think that that's the – you've lost the argument at that point. So I want to see what they were trying to do. Very popular in the 1930s, apparently. Yep. Yeah, um, but the disco retrospective. So that's something—a documentary looking back on it. But it still features in feature films, and there are two ways that this features in serious movies, and also in jokey fun movies. And I've picked up a couple of, of examples of each, which I think are worth your time to have a look at. First is in the serious camp, the last days of disco, which is around two women in Manhattan at the height of the disco craze. Kate Beckinsale is one of the stars. This flopped so badly on initial release that for a time it wasn't available on physical or digital media. Wow. Uh, thankfully, that's now been rectified and Criterion have brought out a wonderful uh, version of it. So it features songs, classic songs, of course, like I Love the Nightlife, uh, Le Freak by Chic, and Let's All Chant by the Michael Sager Band. Three songs that I would say are very, very New York, which is great when it's set in Manhattan what are your thoughts Steve? I really enjoyed this actually more than I thought I was going to do because again anything that you know as opposed to thank god it's Friday which I didn't enjoy that whole sort of I mean the story around um sorry to mention that again cut me and Paul Emondry song yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but you know anything I'm pretty fascinated by Studio 54 I really wish that I could have gone there and I know we're going to talk about that later but this is sort of invokes the Studio 54 um, vibe doesn't it with this but actually it comes back to what I was saying earlier about that thing about going to a disco but this time from the perspective of two women uh, and, and you know, their hopes and dreams of doing that of being two young women that wanting the best for themselves and yeah I I really really enjoyed it actually and it really gave me a a nostalgic kick to want to have been in that nightclub as well it was better than I thought it was going to be I really enjoyed it excellent have you seen it Graham? no I haven't no I'm fascinated now by this especially if it Criterion have brought it back from the dead, effectively. Yeah, well, yeah. definitely want to see. Yeah, this. And, and it's well with it. It recreates that period uh, really well. Yeah, and you get a real I, sense of the time, don't you? Yeah, and and it's not okay. We talk about a joke about thank God it's Friday, where the characters are are if you like cliches and syrupy. There's none of that here. Oh, this is right, really okay. serious. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Kate Beckinsale quite at that time she wasn't afraid to pay particularly nasty characters and I thought she did a tremendous job in this film she does and it you know again like all the films a lot of the films we mentioned it addresses some some really tough you know lots of drug taking again the strange weirdy stuff that would happen in nightclubs um but it also tells the story for them about as they were trying to find their fun times their love the, the, these two women and uh, the, these young people at the time as well but it also the, the disco closes and it's like, what do they do after that? You know, this, this thing that was their life, mm. what can they then do? So it's, it, you know, it speaks to all of us really of, of things that we relied on as younger people about that was, that was our raison d'etre for going out on a Friday and Saturday night. If that's taken away from you, then what, what changes? So yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. And I think it's well worth watching for anybody that has any interest in disco culture. Yeah. 
And that neatly dovetails into the next film and goes back to what you were talking about, Steve, uh, 54 being, of course, about Studio 54. And it's a nightclub as seen through a young employee played by Ryan Phillip in the film. Salma Hayek's also in it. But for me, the standout, Mike Myers playing the over the top uh, owner, Steve Rubell. Mike Myers so, playing me, an over-the-top character. Why? Really? Uh, but, <laughs> but brilliantly. Honestly, it's brilliantly. And if you ever watch any documentary footage on Rubel, you, you see how close he's captured oh. it. It's really good. So you've got yeah, songs yeah, like Dance, 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 like Chic, Young Hearts Run Free, and Native New Yorker by Odyssey. Again, very Manhattan sounding. Again, a really interesting film. Uh, for me, Myers overshadowed the younger cast. But what did you think, Steve? Yeah, I struggled with it a little bit. I, I felt that Mike Myers was a little bit too much of a caricature of Steve Rebell. Um, but again, it summed up exactly what Studio 54 was all about. That whole thing about, you know, Rebell would choose the people who wanted to come in. You know, your face is your credit card. That whole sort of thing about your face has got to fit to come in the club. You've got a sense of all the characters that were at Studio 54. So they'd, they'd, they'd you know, the, the old lady that would come in, she was a real character in real life. It did recreate Studio 54, as you imagine it would be. We're going to talk about the documentary in a minute, obviously, which showed you as it really was. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I did, for me, Mike Myers was just too too over the top in terms of that character. But, you know, Steve Rubell was quite a flamboyant character, so maybe I was missing a trick on that. But yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it, Greg? No, no, again. Have you heard of Studio 54? Yeah, I have. Yes, okay, yes. Jeff. <laughs> Vaguely, Jeff, vaguely, yeah. I have been in Studio 54. Oh, wow. I, but only into the foyer. So when I went to, I was in New York about 10 years ago on holiday. I was with my wife and my brother and sister-in-law. And we, I said, I want to go and find Studio 54. And they just weren't interested. And it's now, well, it was originally a theatre. It became a nightclub and it's now a theatre again. But I uh, I walked in and I pleaded with the people in the box office to let me go in the auditorium and they wouldn't let me in. Oh, so I managed to stand in the foyer and, you know, that, that thing where you would walk in and which yeah. you see on the documentary mm. and it was... Yeah, just to stand there for five, ten minutes was 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 really special. Just imagining all the people that had come through the doors and what had happened in the club. So, um, yeah, if you do go to New York, you can. It's still there, and you can, you know, I, what I should have done is booked a ticket to a show, so I could have actually gone in mm. the club. But um, yeah, it's still there, which is which is great. Did they say to you, oh, "We get this all the time. People just wanted to come in." I, they didn't, but you could see in their eyes that they probably did. Yeah. I mean, they should. They should. I mean, maybe there was a reason I couldn't go in, but. I tried hard, but they weren't. They weren't having any of it. <laughs> they might have been. They were probably taking a show, but they should have. You know, they should have just let me in for a sneak peek. No, I must admit, I haven't seen the documentary. You've seen the documentary Studio Fifty Four, have you? I have, yeah, and it is brilliant. Um, if you want to know about why Studio Fifty Four was so brilliant and why um, Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager, who were the two, so Steve Rubell was sort of the flamboyant. Um, man, he was the face of Studio 54. Then Ian Schrager was his partner, who was less uh, in the limelight. Um, it, 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 the, the, the documentary is basically based on the book that Ian Schrager has written. So it's his definitive story of Studio 54. And Schrager's interviewed in it a lot. And there's some amazing archive footage in there, but also the people that work there. It's the real story of what happened, what went wrong, why Studio 54 failed. Um, I mean, the downfall, of course, is the fact that Rebel was skimming money, and that's and so they were the club was raided, and it and it never, well, they were both skimming money, and it never, it never recovered from that, and Schrager eventually was pardoned. But there's some brilliant archive in it, and you know you see what it was like at the time, 
and you can imagine what it must have been like going in there. You know, the stuff that was in in the film about Studio Fifty Four of of Rubel being outside and choosing people to come in. In the documentary, you see that real footage of what it was like. And there's a brilliant moment where it sticks in my mind where Steve Rebell's in his office and he's being interviewed about something and he talks about all the people that are coming here and he just goes, Michael, 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 come in quick, have a chat. And it's Michael Jackson. Yeah. And Michael Jackson sits down and starts having a chat to camera about what Studio 54 is like. And I just watched it like, oh! And I just, you know, the, those moments of when Studio 54 was in its absolute heyday, I was just watching it thinking... I was born in the wrong decade, <laughs> in the wrong country, in the wrong city. And I was just really, really jealous. I wanted to be there because it just looked incredible. And if you wanted to know what disco really was, then I think Studio 54 was really it. Was Donald Trump mentioned in it? He was mentioned in it, yeah. And I'm trying to remember, was there um, some archive of him in the club? There oh. may have been some archive of him. Yeah, that uh, that does ring a bell. Yeah, he was. Yeah. So he was, yeah. He, he was there, yeah. Yeah, because he was there with that chap, Cohen, who essentially became uh, Trump's mentor. Oh. And um, so the Donald Trump we get today was essentially created in Studio 54. <laughs> yeah. In that case, I take everything back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But yeah. But then when Cohen was dying of AIDS uh, some years later, Trump disowned him, wouldn't have anything to do with him. So, ah, very interesting. Yeah. Quite, yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite a tragic story. But then, you know, Cohen was a nasty piece of work. He was involved in the McCarthyite period. So uh, it's no loss, really. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another one you'd watch? Oh, Greg? yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. yeah, definitely worth watching. Yeah. Definitely worth watching. Where can we track that down, Steve? So I watched that. Uh, let me just see where I I think I might have got that from. I had to buy it. I bought it through Apple. So that's the serious stuff. But we've got to end with the fun because disco is all about fun. And, and two films that for me stand out. It's the first third of Boogie Nights and that opening section to the film to Best of My Love by The Emotions. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the tracks I love the most and it's used uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson to such wonderful effect in that film. Um, and as I said, the whole first third up until New Year's Eve 1980 uh, is just a tremendous movie and it, it really plays on the exhilaration and its love of that sort of music. Uh, anybody seen Boogie Nights? <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> Do you know what? Bizarrely, I don't think I have, but I think I have, but I don't remember it. I mean, it might be one of these ones I watched, you know, but I can't remember it, but I should have watched it. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's subject matters intriguing. The porn industry in America in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, Definitely we, haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Seen yeah. It. yeah okay. Yeah. I would have uh, remembered that. But it's in terms of its structure and in terms of its, ambience it reminded me a great deal of pulp fiction so it's got those characters wandering in and out and the famous story of course is burt reynolds is in it and was oscar nominated as best supporting actor but he hated the film run it down until he got his oscar nomination tried to praise it up and that's essentially what cost him winning it wow <laughs> yeah. that's interesting yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a, a great film it's not a family film oh no um <laughs> but it it's it's a good film um yeah, Graham, I think uh, we're we're at one on this one. Yeah, yeah, it's a great film. It is an absolute, yeah, well, Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah. I love all his work, so it's really yeah. good. But what I would recommend, because the film's almost three hours long, I think, it's quite a long movie. On YouTube, uh, Steve, you can find the opening of the film to the best of my love. 
Okay. Uh, so it's a couple of, it's about three, four minutes long and it's just watch the tracking shot. Instead, can work on it. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so in terms of films, I just want to end with one more, which is a fun one. Uh, Night at the Roxbury. Uh, Saturday Night Live comedians Will Ferrell and Chris Catton cruise clubs while uh, wanting to own one. And I think it's just a fun film that captures, even though it's set in the 90s, captures the 70s. And I've got to say, one of my favourite cover versions is in this, Disco Inferno by Cindy Lauper. And if you've what? not heard it, it's Never amazing. How many heard it? Ah, oh, it's no. amazing. It's yeah, well, well worth tracking down. Fantastic. That's another one on my list. Put that on there, Cindy Lauper. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, this is not, why these podcasts are so good. Yeah. Well, it's not a film because those characters weren't known in the UK. It's Saturday Night Live, and it was then just shown in America. We didn't really know about them, so it was only years later that I managed to catch up with them. I think when Will Ferrell was becoming increasingly a star when I heard about it and, and just loved the film. They do a skit when they go around the nightclubs, which again, I think you can find on YouTube. It's the two of them and they have one of their cousins with them who's played by Jim Carrey. And that is hilarious. Okay. It's a, it's a five minute sequence. Very, very funny. Amazing. Yeah. What about you, Graham? You'd have Night at the Rocks? No, no, I'm just reading the review. Despite being well into adulthood, brothers Doug and Steve Batui, is it, still live at home and work in their flower shop owned by their dad. So that's a that's a good bouncing off point, isn't they? they yeah, and, and it's a take off a of Saturday Night Fever in that respect fabulous. as well. Looks, yeah. It's got some great people so, in it as well. Okay, so we've um, spent a long time going over the history of disco, so I think it's time that we bring this to a close. And I'm now going to put you gentlemen both on the spot and say, although I could fill in the disco movie of your choice for you if you want, but what would you say is your standout disco movie and why? Oh, God, blimey, that's really hard, isn't it? Can I be on? No, go on, Graham, you go first. I want to think about it. My, I think for me, it's 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 just Saturday Night Fever. It was so iconic at the time, so iconic, and I, you know, I can't actually remember going to see it in Bristol, and it was just wonderful. And it had, you know, everybody was really amped up watching it, and it was just such a great film. And the fact that it's got such a dark side to it as well just added to the enjoyment. You know, it's a, a story of two places. And, two separate worlds and you know the characters who travel from one place to the other and there is tragedy in it it's yeah it's it's not just a disco movie it's a proper movie yeah i i, I am gonna have to agree i think i can't think of any others that we've watched that actually surpass it because it just got everything on the tin yeah no i'm saturday night fever too it's the film that stands out I am torn between Saturday Night Fever and thank God it's Friday. But I am, I am going to go along with that. Uh, I'm going to go along with everybody else and say Saturday Night Fever just. Right. But to any listeners who's not seen, thank God it's Friday. Don't. Please don't be put off. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Do yourself a favour. Yeah. Yeah. So, there we go. The history of disco movies. Short-lived, but fun. And I think it is worthy of retrospectives in film history. Maybe, who knows, we can get a cinema together and show some of these classics like Roller Boogie. I'm sure there's a big audience for it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Self-harm. 
Anyway, anyway, it's been great fun talking about this uh, particular niche. So thank you, Stephen Graham, for that chat. And one of the greatest musical periods of film history. Forget your MGM nonsense. So it's time for Graham to take off that ever-tightening white suit. Yep. And Steve, thank you very much again for your time. You're welcome. It's been a real pleasure, Jeff. And thanks to you for all your great research on this as well, because I've learned a lot as well. It's been brilliant. Thanks, Jeff. Certainly, certainly. But thank you both. And cheers, guys. See you at the next one. Bye.